Uh, today I want to talk to you about obedience. Don't freak out, don't run out, don't try to slip out. Society treats obedience like a, or the subject of obedience, someone like a, a four-letter word in some ways. They're a little bit unnerved by it. On the Freakonomics podcast that I listened to, uh, there was one recently in which they were addressing the issue. It's, it's, this is a podcast in which they talk to economists on various issues within society. And there was one that they were discussing the alarming data that, 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 that they've been examining that shows that 40% of all births, uh, babies born in the United States, are being born to moms that are unmarried. Now, go back to the 1960s. Throughout the course of the 1960s, the average from year to year, the 1960s was 3% of babies born were born to homes that were not uh, married couples. Melissa Kearney, who's an economist, actually right here at our own University of Maryland, she's a doctor there, and she's an economist, and she's been examining this, and she's been studying this because she, she's an expert in, in analyzing the effects of various trends on, on, on the more impoverished and the more uh, those with less education within our society. And of course, this impacts those even uh, far greater. And she was looking at this, and she's examining this, and data shows that kids born into homes uh, of married parents have a higher achievement rates in pretty much every area. They're, they're more likely to excel in school. They're more likely to advance in school, to achieve higher levels of education. They're more likely to uh, have a job. They're more likely to, to also stay married in their own homes. They're more likely to, to have higher incomes in their life. This is the fact that kids that come from homes in which the parents are married or born into homes in which the parents are married do uh, achieve higher within society. Well, it turns out with the growing number of children being born to single mothers or in non-traditional settings, academics are hesitant though, in spite of this reality, academics are hesitant to prescribe marriage as the cure to addressing some of the ills that affect our children, even though the data says that this will impact it. And Dr. Kearney said, and I quote, I am perfectly comfortable saying that it looks like being born to two uh, parents, two married parents, is beneficial for kids. She said, I know a lot of academics, they don't want to say that. They don't want to say that, right? She says, I'm, she's asking a question. I know a lot of academics don't want to say that, right? Because it sounds, she says this, because it sounds really socially conservative and preachy. She says they don't want to talk about it because it sounds socially conservative and preaching. Why is it socially conservative and preaching? It's because it's asking people, it's saying, folks, we can fix this issue if we obey, if we pertain to certain long-held principles and truth. Not just within marriage, but, but the underlying larger moral issue here is about the moral things that are taking place that is causing this to happen. And people say we don't want to be preaching. I mean, let's be honest with ourselves. In 1960, there was less abortions than there are now. In 1960, there was not better contraception than there is now. So there was some sort of moral something that was happening that wasn't happening then that is taking place more frequently now. And people say we don't want to tell people what they should and shouldn't do. And so even though the data shows that this is what would help this issue, we're going to not say anything. And this economist says, wait, 
That's unfair to those. They don't want to ask people to obey certain long-held principles and truths, certain moral truths. And the reason for this is because within our society, we've, we've begun to shy away from obedience, at least saying what people should be obedient to. But it's not just in the world, it's in the church as well. If a preacher gets up and says, we must obey, or today we're going to talk about obedience. Some people shift in their seats a little bit. Maybe they cross their arms a little bit. Maybe they think to themselves, I knew this was the Sabbath I should have slept in today. Even if what the preacher is saying is in plain black and white or even in the red letters of Jesus, if it's not politically correct or it is telling someone to do something they don't necessarily want to do, we get a little annoyed. I get a little annoyed. I'm sure that you can get a little annoyed at that as well. But today I want to talk to you about obedience. And I want to put forth the idea that obedience is not, in fact, a four-letter word. It's not something that we should squirm about if we hear it in church or other places as well. Rather, obedience is a beautiful gift, and I hope that in some way I show you today a picture of obedience maybe that you haven't thought about before and the blessing that it actually can be within your life. And so open your Bibles with me to the book of Genesis chapter 17. The book of Genesis chapter 17. We're continuing our series through Genesis chapter 17, verse 1. The Bible tells us when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram. 99 years old. The Lord had appeared to Abram in chapter 15. That was 20 years before this story takes place. The, uh, in uh, a few years after chapter 15, you remember in chapter 15, Pastor Andreas preached about this. Uh, in chapter 15, God said, I will make you the father of a great nation, you will have an heir, and, and, and out of that heir, a great offspring will be born to you. But in chapter 16, Abram and Sarah said, you know what, God is taking too long. God said this, but maybe he doesn't really know how this all works, so we're gonna help God out. And Sarah says, I can't have kids, so you take Hagar. And we talked about that last week, that, that blip in their, in their faith and their trust in God, and they try to help God out in this process, and Ishmael is born. And now this is 13 years after Ishmael has been born, 20 years plus after the original promise, and God comes to Abram to, 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 reaffirm, to reaffirm his original covenant. Verse one, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and, will, and you will, be a gr and, and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram, the Bible says, fell face down. And God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. This is where he got his new name. For I have made you a father of many nations. The covenant in chapter 20 is very similar, similar to the covenant in chapter 15. But right in the very first verse, we, we get an indication that there is a new element added within the context of this covenant. God says to Abraham, walk before me blameless. In other words, God's saying, I want to give you the opportunity to not just believe in your heart that this covenant is true, but to live in such a way that you will illustrate that you believe this covenant is true as well. Abraham, I'm going to give you the opportunity to express outwardly through your actions what is taking place inwardly in your heart. And this brings us to the, to the foci of Genesis chapter 17, which is the subject of circumcision. Verses nine and 10. Then God said to Abraham, 
As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This, of course, carried up through the time of Jesus. And after Jesus, we know, of course, Acts chapter 15 and the writings of Paul and, and other of the disciples and the apostles, that, that circumcision no longer was the covenant sign. But, but up until that point, God says, for all those generations till then, this is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. The covenant you are to keep, every male among you, shall be circumcised. Y'all, in these two verses, what God calls Abraham to do illustrates to us that biblical faith is never just solely cerebral. It's not just in our, in our brains. Biblical faith, true biblical faith, real faith in the God of the universe is always felt in our hearts and then lived out and acted in some way in our lives. God says to him, I'm giving you the opportunity now to, to, to express what is in your heart, to live out his faith. God is saying you can live out your faith in obedience. Now, whenever we talk about obedience, we should always make sure that this is very clear, that there is nothing that you can do. There is no work that you can do. There is no obedience that you can give to God. There is no act or, 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 or function that you can do that can merit God's love, all right? God loves you simply because that is who God is. In fact, the truth is this. The moment that you start to obey something thinking that that will somehow gain you favor with God, you are disobeying. So you can obey and disobey at the same time. Pretty, pretty weird, huh? You're obeying, I'm doing the right things, I'm doing the right things. If it's not because you recognize how much God loves you and an expression of your love for God in your heart, then it is, in fact, disobedience. So obedience is not always obedience. Sometimes it can be disobedience. But God says, I want you to live out in such a way, I want you to live in such a way that you show others through your obedience your faith. Not as a way of salvation, not as a way to gain faith, but because you are saved, Abraham, because I have chosen you. Y'all, obedience is not a four-letter word. Obedience is not an issue that we should shy away from in the church. Obedience is a part of our journey of faith. Chapter 17, verse 11, the Bible says, you are to undergo circumcision, and then he says this, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Who is this sign for? Well, when we think of obedience and we think of our actions and we think of our of, of, of the things that we do in our life, a lot of times our immediate thought is, well, I'm doing this as a witness to others. And that's true. We do obey and we do live in certain ways to be a witness to others, and that's something we talk about. We should never think of, of a sign or, or, this, or our obedience as something to prove to God. We should never think that. God doesn't say, okay, well, I have to make sure that they're trustworthy or they need to prove themselves to me. God, God doesn't say that. The Bible tells us over and over again in several places in the Bible that God doesn't look on the outside. Rather, God looks upon what? What's in the heart, right? And so God already knows what is in our heart. And in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, the Bible says that Abraham believed in God and God counted it to him, that is Abraham, as righteousness, in other words, God says, I already know what's in your heart. I know that in your heart, you are a righteous man, that you are a man that likes to live, that you desire to live for me, that you love me, that you want to honor me. God already knows what is in the heart of Abraham. God doesn't need the sign. Yes, the sign can be for others, but, but there's another 
individual, when it comes to obedience, that I believe the sign is for. And I think we miss this sometimes. The Bible says, God said to Abraham, this covenant, this, this act, this, this, this outward uh, action that you will do will be a sign between me and you of our covenant. In other words, I think God's saying to him, your obedience is, is not about you needing to prove anything to me. Your obedience is, is not only about your witness outwardly, but, but this is a sign between you and me that it will be a reminder to you, Abraham, that I have made a promise to you. That it will be a reminder to you, Abraham, that I have chosen you. That it will be a reminder to you, Abraham, that I am in control and that I will take care of you. Now, we've, we've gone through the book of Genesis, and if you haven't been here, I encourage you to go online and to listen to uh, the sermons, the previous sermons. But as we've gone through the book of Genesis, we've seen that in the life of Abraham, there's been several times in which Abraham has taken a misstep. There's a famine in Egypt. I mean, there's a famine in the land, and so he says, you know what? God told me to come to this land, but I need food, so I'm gonna go down to Egypt. He, he has a little bit of doubt, and he doesn't trust God. So he goes down to Egypt. When he gets to Egypt, he says, you know what? My wife is beautiful. If I tell people she's my wife, they're gonna kill me. So I'm gonna compromise my wife, boo, Abraham, and I'm gonna compromise my wife and say that she's my sister so that all be safe. Again, Abraham having this misstep. Genesis chapter 16, which we just looked at last week. You know what? We don't really care about this girl, Hagar. She's just our slave. She's just our servant. We're not even gonna ask her, but we're going to tell her, you're going to have Abraham's baby because we wanna help God out in this process. Again, boo Abraham, this time boo Sarah also on this part. But So we see these several places in which Abraham has a misstep. Now remember this. Even though Abraham continues to have these missteps in his life, and we look at those missteps and we say, those are some pretty big missteps. Never in the story do we see God forsaking Abraham. Forsaking Abraham. In fact, the Bible tells us over and over again that Abraham is a righteous man. Can I tell you something, y'all? The Bible tells us the difference between righteous and unrighteous, all right? The difference between the righteous and the unrighteous is this. When the righteous fall, by the grace of God, they get back up. When the unrighteous fall, they just choose to stay down there. That's the, that's the only difference. You're righteous, you're still gonna fall. You're unrighteous, you're gonna fall. If you're righteous, you're just gonna get back up by the grace of God. That's, that's the only difference. So, so Abram is still a righteous man, he's still, but God is, is helping up. He falls, he helps him up. He falls, he helps him up. And God says, now some 20 years later, you know what, maybe I need to do something in this man's life, maybe I need to, Encourage him to, to participate in something in order to remind him that he's mine, that I've chosen him, that he can trust me. And not only him, but, but those that follow him, that they'll remember that they're my chosen people, that they're loved, that I care for them, that, 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 that I have a special plan and a special blessing for them. And every time they participate in this act, they're gonna be reminded not that they need to obey to prove anything to me, but they'll be reminded that I've chosen them, that I love them. Obedience isn't a sign to God that we are trustworthy. Obedience is a sign to us that God is trustworthy, that God chose us long before we chose him. Why is that the case? What happens when I'm disobedient? What happens when you're disobedient? When I'm disobedient, especially if I am disobedient and I don't, quickly come to the Lord and get back up and do that thing, I begin to have crises of faith. 
I begin to have crises of faith. The devil comes at me and says, you did this, you did this, you did this. Look how much of a mess up you are. How can you be a pastor? How can you be a good father? How can you be a good husband? You know, man, that was, why'd you spend your money on that? That was dumb. What are you thinking? The devil comes and says these things to me and my faith begins to have this, this crisis. The opposite though is also true. That when I obey, when I, when I walk in obedience to God, I discover that, that I become stronger and that God is strengthening me day by day and God calls me to a new level of obedience and I go, man, God, you're really strengthening me and growing me. Obedience reminds me that God is in control and that God is continuing to work on me and, and to grow me and to strengthen me. When I disobey, I have a crisis of faith. When, when I obey, my faith is strengthened. Let me give you two quick stories to illustrate this. I've been a Christian less than two months, probably just a month and a few days, in fact, and I went out to California to visit some friends. And, and one of the friends that I went to visit, uh, his dad had, had a girlfriend who was a executive high up in the movie industry. She works for one of the major uh, I Googled her name actually this this morning to see if I, she was still there, and she is. I won't tell you who it is, but she's a high-up executive, especially after this story, I won't tell you who it is. She's a high-up executive in a movie studio in California, and she uh, was giving us her tickets, box seats to the Dodger game, and I'm go, I'll go visit anybody that has box seats to a Dodger game for the movie studio, and so we were going the next Sunday, and so we drove over Saturday night, and we stayed with her, and we got to her house, and, and she said, hey, do you guys want to go out? And we said, yeah, let's, we'll go out. Now, let me just tell you, um, my friend and I were both only 18 years old, but she said, let's go out. And she takes us to this place, and it's just like in the movies. We walk into this place, and this person meets us, and they lead us up the stairs to this exclusive VIP area, and they sit us down at this table, and a person comes over, and she says, yeah, I want drinks, and she tells them what drinks she wants to order for us, and and no one asked for ID or anything like that, even though we're well underage because this is that type of exclusive place. And I'm sitting up there and she says, yeah, bring us this drink and this drink and this. And, and I'm sitting there and I, in my mind, I'm like, wait, I'm a Christian now. I'm not supposed to drink. I don't want to drink. I shouldn't drink. I won't drink. The drink comes and sits down and I do drink. Maybe some of you have been in those moments. Now, in that immediate moment that I had that drink, I will tell you that honestly, that immediately in my mind went through, maybe everyone was right. Maybe I can't change. Maybe, maybe, maybe they're right. Maybe my faith is too weak. And I started to have a crisis of faith as I'm sitting there at that table. And over the next couple weeks, I'm starting to spiral. I'm beginning to have this crisis of faith. In my, in my disobedience, my faith is, is being rocked. And you know what the devil's saying to me? It wasn't real. God doesn't love you. You need to do better. You gotta get better before you can get with God. And there's this crisis of faith going on in my mind, taking place in my mind. And I'm struggling. I praise God for wonderful mentors. I got back to Ohio. They saw me spiraling a bit and they said, Chad, come on, let's talk. And I told them what had happened and they talked to me about God's mercy and God's forgiveness and God's love and God's grace and, and it was just a wonderful blessing. Anytime you're a mentor in someone's life, start there, okay? Love, mercy, grace, forgiveness, always start there. It's always the best place to start. Um, but they started there and, 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 but for two weeks I had been doubting all those things, God's love, God's mercy, God's forgiveness, his real change in my life. Why? Because 
when we disobey, there's this crisis of faith. Not because God has actually left us. We see with Abraham, God didn't ever leave him. God never forsook him. But the crisis of faith is Satan uses that disobedience to attack us and to, to put us down. But the converse then has to also be true and a second story to share with you. A few months, just a few months after this incident, I was in Centerville, Ohio, where I lived, and I was playing golf at Yankee Trace. If you ever go to Centerville, Ohio, please play golf at Yankee Trace. It's a wonderful course. They only had 18 holes when I was there. They have 27 holes now. Don't worry about the addition. Just play the original 18. That's just a little pointer for all of you golfers. But, but I was there at Yankee Trace, and we were on the first hole, and I still remember it as, as plain as day, and I hit my tee shot off of the first hole into the front fairway bunker on the right. I blocked my drive out to the front, uh, to the fairway bunker on the right, and I was playing with two other individuals and I walk up to hit my ball and I hit my ball at the fairway and I'm getting the rake and I'm raking the bunker. And as I'm raking the bunker, I notice that up at the front of the bunker, there's, there's something sitting up there and I recognize what it is. It's a pack of cigarettes. And I see this pack of cigarettes and I decide to approach the pack of cigarettes. And I'm walking towards these pack of cigarettes and as I get closer, I realize that it's the brand that I had smoked in my life. And I look at them and I notice that there's a couple of them that have slid out. And I bend down, I don't touch it, but I bend down and I look closely and I notice that it's basically a full pack. This has fallen out of someone's bag. And instinctively, or, or maybe not instinctively, you know what I did? I looked up and I thought, where are my playing partners? And I noticed that they were walking up ahead of me and that their backs were to me. They had already hit their balls and they're walking towards the green. And what did I think in that moment? I could just pick these up and put them in my bag. They won't see them, no big deal. And a voice in my heart said, Chad, you don't wanna do that. Chad, you don't wanna do that. And I thought, okay, I don't wanna do that. And then the second thought that I had was, but it's a golf course, so I should at least pick them up to throw them away. <laughs> and the voice in my heart said, Chad, don't even touch them. Just don't even touch them. So I picked up my bag real quick, put it on my back, and I literally jogged up to the green. You know, Joseph running away, you know. I jogged up to the green. But even remembering that, it's one of the pivotal points in my walk with the Lord. And you may say, well, that seems silly. But, but folk, I had been smoking since seventh grade. Since seventh grade. This was now six years later, five and a half, six years later. And, and, and in that moment, and I had always caved. When I had that drink, I will be honest with you, I had a cigarette after that drink, it just But in that moment, I, it was this pivotal moment because suddenly I realized God's making me stronger. God's changing me. God's blessing me. The obedience wasn't a sign that, oh, now I'm worthy for God. What God was saying to me in that moment was, was I'm working on you. I'm in control. I got this. Don't worry about it. It was such a beautiful moment in my life. Not because I somehow proved anything to God, not because I was a witness to anybody. I haven't even told this story in church, I don't think, before. My wife said today, you're gonna have to have a conversation with the kids when you get home, Chad. Um, <laughs> but it was, it was because between me and God, in that moment, it was God saying, don't worry about it. I'm working on you. I'm changing you day by day. My power, my grace, my strength. That is the blessing of obedience. Sometimes we think about obedience and we say, man, why do I have to obey? Why do I have to do this? Why? 
or I've got to prove to God or I've got to prove to someone else. No, sometimes obedience can just be the blessing because it's a reminder to us that God is working on us. One of the things I notice about the Abraham story is this. God doesn't tell him about the covenant of circumcision. God doesn't ask him to perform this act until 20 years after the original promise. Do you know what I've discovered in my life? As I walk and as I grow with God, God will say, now I want you to obey me in this area. God didn't ask me to do that 10, 15 years ago, but now God's asking me to obey him in that area. And rather than me going, oh man, I can't believe that you're making me do this, God, although sometimes I won't lie, I say that. But, 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 but isn't it more a reminder of saying, you know what, God's saying now, I'm growing you and you're ready for this next step. And that new call to obedience is a call of God saying, you're being changed from the inside out. And for me, I say praise God for that. Praise God for that. Obedience is a beautiful gift from God because here's what I discover in my, in my journey. The older I get, and I still got a long ways to go because I still tend to beat myself up. But, but where, where obedience was once do, don't, do, don't, do, don't, it's now thank you, God, for this blessing of change in my life. Thank you, God, for this blessing of change in my life. Thank you, God, for this. And God uses it to grow me and to strengthen my faith in him. God says to Abraham, I want this to be a sign between me and you. Abraham, you've had some struggles along the way. I don't know if you remember that incident in Egypt. I don't know if you remember that incident with Hagar. You've had some struggles along the way, Abraham. And by the way, if you continue reading chapter 17, God says, you're my chosen man, Abraham. I'm giving you a new name, Abraham. I want you to commit to this covenant of circumcision. And Abraham's like, yeah, I fall on my face and I worship you, God. And he says, and Sarah's gonna have a baby. And, God, and Abraham stands up and says, you're kidding me, right? The Bible says that Abraham laughs out loud. In other words, he falls down again. And God says, no, this is the commitment. He says, what about Ishmael? Just go with Ishmael. I already got one, just go with Ishmael. He says, look, I'm gonna bless Ishmael still. But there's gonna be another kid. And Abraham says, okay, I'll obey. And he goes and he gets circumcised and circumcises his family and, the, and, and, and his servants and all those with him as God commanded in obedience. But Abraham didn't hear this and hear the covenant and say, yeah, I'm ready to obey and I'm gonna be awesome forever. Wait, I'm laughing at you, God, because this is a foolish thing. Folks, obedience isn't about like, man, I gotta do it, just do it, just do it. It's a reminder that God is working on us, that he's changing us from the inside out. And by his grace, by his perfect character, I'm looking more like him every single day. What a beautiful gift obedience is when we think about it in that context. Let us pray. Jesus, I pray that each one of here, us in here will appreciate obedience for what it is. Not, not just a sign to others, definitely not a sign to you of what's in our hearts. You already know what's in our hearts. But obedience is this beautiful reminder. When, when we obey, we realize that it's not by our might nor by our power. We realize it's because God, you're in control and you're changing us from the inside out. Lord, give each of us a heart of flesh that will be tenderized and ready to obey you as you call us in each journey of this life. You're calling me to things now that you didn't even, I didn't even understand 15, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Lord, I thank you for that call 
where each person is at and where you're calling them at in this moment. It's probably different than where I'm being called. Lord, may they see that as a blessing that you are growing them in your love and your mercy. And may they know that it's not by their power nor by their strength, but it's by your love and your grace. We thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.